Welcome to the Fresh is the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kay Fresh. This is episode 21. And what's today's date? March the 7th of 2016. I mean, we're already in March already. Here in Detroit, it's been snowing a lot lately, but this week, it's going to be in the 50s and 60s. It's already, it's warm out there right now. This weather has been nuts. Uh, we got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about West Coast rap. Yes. West Coast rap means so much to me. It's near and dear to my heart. When I first started listening to rap music, hip-hop music, it was probably around 92, 93. I was like 11, 12 years old. Um, my brother had some tapes. And besides the Detroit stuff like Isham, Nautis, and St. Clown Posse, I was listening to West Coast Gangster Rap. It was NWA, Easy e Dr. Dre, Snoop, um, E-40, Spice One, uh, it was above the law, it was all those guys, dude, and I felt, as like, as some just white dude coming up from the suburbs, you know, just outside the city, like, this was this whole other thing, you know, like, I'm, I'm from like a working class neighborhood area, but I knew this whole other culture that they were putting on these records was something totally different. Something that the the world, the nation, the media did not want the world to see. Uh, so it was, it blew my mind, you know. So I got a great guest today. Uh, he goes by the name of Jerry B. Long Jr. And in the hip-hop world, you'd know him as Cocaine. Cocaine, he was a part of the whole Ruthless Records thing. He co-wrote songs for NWA and Above the Law and Easy e He was a part of that whole sort of movement. Uh, he's the son of a Motown composer, Jerry Long Sr., and his cousin, Big Hutch, a.k.a. Cold 27, of Above the Law. He is the nephew of R&B singer Willie Hutch. So this family has always had like music like classic music within it, you know. And we talk about it in the interview. Cocaine was also featured on Dr. Dre's 2001 album, featured on a bunch of tracks on Snoop Dogg's The Last Meal back in 2000. Uh, it was so good, you know, talk with him because, like, that part of hip-hop was really kind of near and dear to me, and I really like talking about it because this is a time when... That's a time when hip-hop was capturing... Things that were so timeless to black culture and to just cult minority culture in general that is still very relevant today with the with the you know social issues the, the the police brutality the the sort of mo how the cultures mesh in society today it really is no different than it was when these records were you know were being put out it was a powder keg the in LA the the blacks and the Koreans didn't get together the blacks and the police the police and the it was just like everybody did not mesh well with each other and we and uh, me and cocaine talk about that we talk about the sense of community within their own people and how that sort of, you know that that sort of thing where they don't they feel oppressed by 
by authority and their own community isn't necessarily their own community. So we get into talking about those records. Uh, we talk about how the whole feuds between Easy e and Dr. Dre and Ice Cube, those kind of happened and how they kind of got past it and how he was able to just kind of, you know, mend the fences with those relationships and go on to work with her. I mean, cocaine has pretty much worked in some way or another with a who's who of West Coast, you know, hip-hop artists, and even people outside of, uh, you know, he, you, you look, I'm looking ahead at his uh, discography now, and he's worked with, you know, E-40, Spice One, Brother Lynch Hung, J.O. Felony, Sebo, Mac Dre, The East Side of C. Marta, Two Shorts, Exhibits, Yuck Mouth, P. Diddy, P. Diddy, Busta Rhymes, Cypress Hill, Warren G. Razkaz, Prince Paul, the Booyah Tribe, Sugar Free, oh, look at Alchemist, man. And before I even, like, when I even did this um, interview, I didn't even, it was before I even knew that Cocaine would actually be featured on a track with Snoop Dogg on the upcoming Jay Dilla Diary album, which is music that Jay Dilla did back in, like, 92 when he was signed with MCA uh, that, never, that got shelled, so... Um, I think um, they went. I'm not. I'm not exactly sure the the story behind that track. If uh, Cocaine Snoop laid their vocals d- down recently or back then, because I know when they were trying to put this thing together, they were trying to, um, in certain aspects, fulfill Jay Dilla's wishes on some of the tracks, and see which one and try because he had um, he expressed his ideas to uh you know certain people about some people he wanted on his, uh, on this album like example of something that didn't happen that wanted to, that that he wanted to happen there was another track that how shoes uh produced a beat that uh Dilla purchased from how shoes that he wanted fabulous on it but for whatever reason they he never you know never got around to actually doing that track back then and recently they've been trying to get in touch with fabulous and it just never happened so you know that's too bad but, uh, you know, we definitely had a great talk with Cocaine about those days, you know, back in the you know late 80s, early 90s, about that sort of, you know, the, the neighborhood issues that were going on. Because with uh, the whole Rodney King thing, the riots and everything, that was such a, a thing that blew up in the media and it brought this whole other outlook to America about what was going on. Uh, and then we t- you know, talked about the, you know, the aftermath of all that and his, you know, his career going on after that and to his new album. He has a new album dropping March 18th. It's called The King of G-Funk. So, um, and if you want more information about what's going on, you can just go to Cocaine's Twitter account, which is Cocaine Official. That's K-O-K-A-N-E Official. And it literally has everything you need to know about what's going on with this King of G-Funk album. So let's get to the interview with Cocaine. Hey, what up, brother? Hey, how's it going? Oh, man. Just, kinda, uh, just on the road right now. Word. Cool, cool. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for, uh, yeah, thanks for taking time out to do this uh, you know, podcast interview with me. Yeah, like um, I'm really, I was really excited to uh, be able to talk with you, uh, because definitely, 
you come from a part of you know of hip hop that was you know very dear to me when I first got into uh, hip hop uh, when I was about uh, twelve or thirteen. Um, the first stuff that I listened to was the West Coast gangster rap, N.W.A., Dre, Easy E. So it was crazy to like you know as just like some 13, 13, 14 year old white kid, you know, from just outside of Detroit, you know, to like listen to this sort of music, you know, it was, it was just like such an eye opener. It was so exciting to me. Um, when, when you kind of look back to those days, you know, with, you know, of, uh, LA at that time, uh, the LA area during those times, during the late eighties to the, into the nineties, from your, you know, point of view, you know, what was your feelings about what was going on in the streets during that time in the black community, you know, with the riots and stuff going on? Well, it's the same thing uh, that's going on today in Chicago. Ain't nothing changed at all. It's the same thing, man, like with colors and when Ice-T was coming out and stuff and, and all those records was created from the, from the suppression that we was going through. You can look 30-something years later, and in fact, it got worse. So in a prophetic way, um, N.W.A. was not only just making the music and above the law and cocaine and, and uh, wasn't just making the music. When, he, when you hear uh, after police, well, some of the injustices that they were talking about are still going on according to the day. So really, you know, going up around that, it was music that had more substance. And and going back to what the NWA and some of the things that we were able to touch on above the law, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove, and things like that, it was, it kind of gave you goosebumps because it was really in a prophetic way. Right. You see what I'm saying? So that climate and the atmosphere is no different than what's going on and what happened in 2015, going into 2016. So it's no different than going to Detroit. I just visited Detroit. You can still go to neighborhoods and the projects that they set up. Man, some of those neighborhoods still look like Beirut. Ain't nothing changed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. And you guys were kind of telling that a story of what was going on in America that the media didn't want to be told, but you guys were telling it anyways. You know, how do you feel like you were able to break through those barriers to be able to tell your stories? Well, first of all, you got to contribute uh, the things that are going on on a, on a big, wide scale. So Jerry Heller was a significant part to really broaden what we, you know, those brothers were saying for the suppressed environments. You know, Jerry, a lot of people don't give Jerry Heddle the credit that he deserved, whether you like him or not. He was a very important key to Eric's whole dynamics of this push, and as far as that, inadvertently as far as that concerned, to all of us. You know, Jerry Heller, once Jerry Heller got involved, it really took it up on that, that scale. And it wasn't just a black thing. You had white kids really supporting that. Because at the same time, you know, it doesn't matter what race you really are because at the same time, we bleed the same. You got white, poor white people. You got poor black people. You got poor Asians. So it was a voice that I think 
according to that generation, it didn't matter what color you was, it really touched the nerve. You know, because in some type of fashion or form, we can all relate to some type of suppression. Right. Everybody wasn't, everybody ain't rich. You know what I mean? So, you know, the key key factor that was in this game, you know, it was it was like, you know, it takes more to make a Rolls Royce look good. You can't just have on the tires. You got to have the nice color. You got to have right engines parts for the whole Rolls Royce to operate as one. Right. And it was just a combination of things. It was easy. It was Dre. It was it was uh, Jerry Heller, Q, Rand, above the law, cocaine, DLC, that made that type of movement on one accord for the whole world to relate to. Because I don't care if you're in Russia. Hey, I don't care if you're in Japan. Hey, look what they did in Tiananmen Square. It was certain things and injustices that we have to fight. And something something about hip-hop that really spread it out demographically and crossed all color lines. Because at the end of the, end of the day, no pain, no gain. We all bleed the same. Yeah, there's definitely like that sort of spirit, like you said, that it kind of, you know, crosses uh, race lines and whatnot, where when you look at the things that are being kind of done in the hoods and whatnot, you have to remember that what this country might do to the least of us, they might do to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's what it was. And it it had a chance to, you know, being a witness, I'll be crossing the finish. I mean, crossing those color lines and barriers, um, it really told our story coming from the side of the West Coast because people didn't understand some of the violence and things that came out of the West Coast and why we were talking like that. Well, this has been going on for years and years and years. you got to look at when Ronald Reagan was governor and all these things and Black Panthers were set up to really coincide with with helping the community. But you always have a hidden hand that wants house divided, a house will fall. And out of that Black Panther thing and Black Panther Party derives Crips and Bloods. So it's, it's, it's unrealistic to think everybody to listen to change because you always got one person in the crowd that wants to deliberate confusion. And that's exactly what happened in California. But the good thing about music and hip-hop is that no matter what challenges that were met, the music allowed us to articulate a message over that normally media just, their whole purpose is to really brainwash and, 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 the, and to perpetuate the dysfunction of the suppressed environments, which we call ghettos. But see, thank God, because of hip-hop, hip-hop allowed us to transcend past all color lines and to tell our story. And 20-something-odd, 30-something-odd years later, that story is still a component to what's going on today. Right. As you know, as someone who is a part of this uh, West Coast uh, hip-hop movement, even, you know, whether it's then or even now, how were you able to sort of, you know, survive the sort of oppression that was going on in your neighborhoods 
to still, you know, be around today making music? Well, you know, I say this, and, and you know, for those that are not really religious, you better get spiritual. You know, it was it was the universe, or some people call it God, that really um, led me to uh, to fight harder. You know, and it's something about injustices, especially when they're struggling. I look at it like in, in nature. Uh, a diamond can only be made by pressure. Yeah. Gold comes out of refined fire. So it's those things that we go through and challenges and would-be failures that really wasn't failures at all. It was a technique for the universe to help us realize that, hey, through perseverance and perseverance and through overcoming those challenges made us stronger. And what don't kill a real brother will make you stronger. So I had, I had a privilege to be blessed by the man upstairs with a talent. And a lot of my brothers and sisters didn't have that talent, didn't matter what color you was. Um, but I can contribute everything to, uh, to God Almighty, man, and to, to my grandparents, too. You know, I was raised by my grandparents when all the uncles and aunties and moms just tripping on dope and all that. And I can say, man, you need a God or a family-like structure to stand up on that platform to help you to understand what virtues is about. See, I was blessed enough to have those virtues. And I wasn't so different than the next homeboy died in the pine box that I was best friends with. You know, it's just that when I look at when I look at that in the nutshell, it was really the men upstairs that kind of kept me for a greater mission. And what that mission was, uh, only he knew it was. And now, years later, I understand. Uh, eight kids by one woman, been with mine for thirty years, been over, been over uh, all around the world. Um, there's no practically no person that is, you know, that's on that billion dollar status that I ain't done songs with. But the most but the most prominent thing is to recognize and humble yourself in this business. Right. And that's what I say that's what kept me alive is that when life threw its curveballs, it allowed me to f- reflect back on, on who's in control, first of all, and it allowed me to reflect back on family because family you know, it's a lot of hip-hop fathers out there, and it's a lot of illusion that is attached to this industry. And you you have to have some type of family-oriented, God-like structure to be able to even sustain. Right. And that's how it was at Rufus. It's a lot of misconceptions over there. But see, Eric read his company like family. And nowadays when you see these kids, the bunch of kids, just articulate, just just perpetuate negativity all day with no balance and no family type of stability. You see what I'm saying? Right. So, you know, going back and steady, you gotta have something to brown your wire, because if you don't, life will shock your ass. <laughs> right. I've heard like many times, uh, definitely during the riots in LA back in the day where people would, you know, express that their own communities didn't really feel like that they were, that they were their communities. Like they were just there, but other people, 
you know, whether it's law enforcement or whatever, made it feel like their own communities weren't truly there. During those, during those times, how, you know, how did you kind of, and how did other people sort of try to keep a community within this community that didn't feel like it was truly theirs? Well, each one teach one. That's what I was taught in my house. Each one teach one, reach one. And it's just like being a Navy SEAL, man. You have a thousand people go Navy SEALs. Think of how many people truly make it, man. Probably only 10 of them. Right. And I was blessed to be one of those 10 as far as what I do. And, um, you know, um, you know, when you look back, on certain things that happened in your childhood and upbringing, you are real, real in a blessed situation to be able to say, I persevered. You understand? Right. And growing back up in that type of climate, it was crazy because you got to realize things just don't happen. The branches to the roots of the problem, branches to the problem don't happen unless you go to the root of the problem. Now, it was degradations and systematic generational curses and different other things that happened. There was things that, you know, coming from a suppressed environment that those children inherited long before they came out the womb. Right. Do you understand? And where would we be always talking about, well, this is that and this is that, when we only touching on the branches without addressing the root? It's like when you look at when you look at it for what it is, all forms of music came out of slavery. Right. When you talk about rock and roll, you talk about blues, you talk about hip hop, talk about jazz, talk about country even. That came out from the blues area. Right. You understand? And it's like it gets to the point to where hip hop allowed us to have hip hop allowed us to have reparations. When the Congress is just now telling all the race, forgive me for slavery. I don't know if you've seen that. Congress just apologized for slavery. Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> yes, they did. So that's like adding insult to injury. Right. But the good thing about music was, and why it transcended, because it had to. Because when you look at Brother uh, Martin Luther King, you know, marching and doing his things. He wasn't just marching with with blacks. It was all kind of people. It was the freedom fighters. And hip-hop is a modern-day freedom fighter. It don't matter what color you are. It just matter about the soul and the spirit. So growing up in those times and, and being exposed to N.W.A., it was the substance and the spirit and the heart of the hood, what they was going through when nobody could even say nothing on popular television. You see what I'm saying? So when you look at music now and you touch on the music we were saying back then after police or whatever it was, you notice back then we had more of a balance. Yeah. Nowadays, popular music is just perpetuating ignorance. And nobody is not knocking nobody for, for their hustle because anybody that lives in those ghettos where it's least opportunity for them to get jobs, it's poor education, it's different other things that hold them down and suppress them, music was like a formal way of getting out to help your family. 
But now, popular music now, hip hop, is really in. It, 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 at, for one point, at one point, it was really in shambles. Now it's starting to get back, and it's starting to deliberate positive energy again. Right. Because for the last five years, hip hop has got a bad, bad name, and especially because of all the ignorance that happened prior to that too, that led up to just, you know, music just being one way, like ignorant, 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 <laughs> ignorant. Music is supposed to uplift. That is the meaning of hip hop. That was the meaning of the message. So when I look at Kendrick Lamar is going back to their roots and really, really talking about some things that are of substance is good because at the end of the day, you need a fresh pair of legs on the court when Kobe Bryant got to gracefully say, Doc. Yeah, definitely. You see what I'm saying? So, you know, it goes back to each one, teach one, reach one. One brick at a time. Right. And I'm happy at the state the way hip-hop is starting to fall into place. That is one of the things that, you know, by my travels going back to the West Coast, how all the cats were. Myself, Snoop Dogg, to Dre hooked up, back up with Hutch. We hooking back up because we have a responsibility to show unity, not only to ourselves, but really to the youngsters. Because if you can go over to New Jersey and see people gripping in blood, where that come from? You can go to Detroit and you can go to uh, Texas and see people, the same people what Ice-T was talking about in Colors. They're doing the same thing. So now hip-hop is like this. The same blocks we destroy is the same blocks we help. Right. Right, and you kind of touched on some things uh, that I, wanted, I was going to get to. Um, like, definitely during those NWA Ruthless days, you know, there was, like, a, a fair share of emotions running wild. You had, like, the disses between um, Ice Cube going after NWA after he left, and then Dre and Easy. And then you even recorded your own disc towards Death Row with Don't Bite the Funk. Um, when you uh -huh. look back at that time, you know, what was just the overall mood going on between everybody from your perspective? You know, how, you know, how did you feel being in the middle of, of that all witnessing, witnessing it? Well, coming from the hood, it was like ABC. It was like whatever y'all want to do. Death Row was like fuck us and we was like fuck them. And it wasn't just on no rap shit, you know. Some some stuff was because Jock Dre and Easy used to live around the corner, but then it started getting real deep when people were trying to force people to sign contracts and kidnap people and all this old bullshit. It became real. Right. You feel me? Yeah. So they took it out of context, and the gangsters came in. You know what I'm saying? And, and it became something else because really hip hop was built upon. Subconscious messages, and it was built upon battling. You know, to take the battling out of it, that's not hip hop. This was based upon hip hop, but where it got confused is that they put gang banking into battling. And then that's when it went haywire. That's when all those, you know, you know, you've seen so much talent come out of the California men. You see Tupac, man, I still think about it, man. Tupac would have been one of our biggest leaders, man, it ever was. Right. He didn't have to go. But see, at that time, 
it was certain evil forces that didn't want him around. You see what I'm saying? So now I would say in 2016, it's really a learning lesson. You know, a lot of kids need to really know that are in those colleges. It needs to be sealed in the scroll so that way they they can have more hip-hop classes to really educate these kids on, on how important and significant hip-hop, hip-hop is and was at that time. Because you got to think about it. They're so quick to talk about the need of the peanut of the Santa Marina, but hip-hop created billions and billions of dollars. Right, right. You see what I'm saying? So it's like, you know, with all these things, you know, one thing that I noticed that hip-hop did and did, soul music did, it allowed us to have that voice. It didn't matter what the skin tone was. As long as you had that voice. That's basically it. And then, like, after that time, you were, you know, you were featured on Dr. Dre's 2001 album, um, and you were all over Snoop's uh, uh, Last Meal album, along with other things that he was uh, working on, like the East Siders and uh, Doggy's Angels. How How were you able to kind of, you know, mold those relationships after all those, you know, disses were going back and forth and all that gangster shit was kind of going back and forth during those, you know, ruthless versus death row years? Well, first of all, a lot of people don't know out there, uh, Snoop Dogg was not discovered by Dr. Dre or should. Snoop Dogg was discovered by Code 187 above the law. We were going to put his record out first. I was actually signed to Rufus Records. But back, at, back when Dre and them was having discrepancies against Rufus, we were all kind of like, what's going on? But we rekindled our business relationship, and the poison that Suge at that time put in Dre, Dre was like, I'm gone. And it was all poison because Dr. Dre didn't have to leave easy hanging like that. Trust me. It was all propaganda. So therefore, at the time where Buck Blonde Coke Buck Law was going to put out uh, Snoop, which is named Slim back then, Snoop Record, because Warren G. from Snoop, and this is when what you call was coming out the Armed Services, Nate Dog, up to the studio in Inglewood on La Cienica and Citadella. I remember like it's yesterday, the beginning of 90. But I was signed. But Law was coming out with they stuff, living like Hustler. And we were all going to leave with Drake. Like I said, above the law, and cocaine rekindled our business relationship. And the poison that the damage control has already been done, that been put inside of of uh, Dr. Dre's head. So they went and started their death row. Now, Snoop couldn't wait around for me because he was not a ruthless signed artist. So Warren G. took Snoop to Dr. Dre. And when he took Snoop to Dr. Dre at that time, we created this genre of music called G-Funk. Yeah. That's above the long cocaine. If you hear the chronic, Dr. Dre was supposed to have the whole, whole, uh, um, Dr. Dre had black mafia life. When you hear black mafia life, the reason why we was going on them because it sounded, com- the chronic sounded completely like, almost like black mafia. 
And you'd have never heard those words chronic. And it's not different them. This is actual fact because we're all friends now. We can laugh about that. <laughs> but this is actual fact. You know, words like balling, words like chronic, words like G-Funk came out of our camp. So we felt like they were biting us, biting us now. Talking about 187 on the, that was Hutch. Hutch well, Hutch is 187. But see, that's how that had happened on on um, that particular situation. And, you know, we were beefing tough. And when Eric died, that was my like my lifeline, our lifeline to, 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 to everything, man. It's like it put us into a deep, dark depression where nine times out of ten, because I had kids, I was just going to a lot of studios and recording, and nine times out of ten, they liked my voice because they said, you sound like George Clinton, Rick James, and you rap. <laughs> right. So I want to use you, whether it's an E-40, whether it's a Too Short, or whoever. So that kind of created a safe haven for me, you know, to go ahead and continue on my music and at the same time, I had to put food on the table, brother. I had to put food on the table. So after Eric had passed, we, and moving on up, we decided, you know, after it wasn't no really no Devereaux and Ruthless beef no more, me and Stu, Dr. Dre, we were friends before. So we decided to put the funk down, and we became friends. And in 1990, I hooked up with back up with Snoop Dogg to a mutual friend of ours named Half Dead. Took me to the studio, and we just started talking again. And all the stuff we went back, it was just though we met at the first time in 1990. Right. And then the chemistry was like, wow. You know, so we started doing the East Siders and Doggy's Angels and the Last Meal and Chronic 2001. And everything was just, we looked at each other, and at the same time, and we didn't have to say much, we knew this was right. You feel me? Right, right. Yeah, um, kind of, you know, going back, you you know, you uh, mentioned how, you know, Above the Law, Cocaine, Cole 1E7 was, you know, definitely responsible for, you know, creating that G-Funk sound. Like, when... Mm-hmm. When that was all first coming about, you know, what do you remember about just creating music with them during that time and seeing this whole above the law thing, this whole new sound kind of bloom? Uh, we were making records to say, oh, G-Funk's going to be a worldwide phenomenon, man. And one of the biggest impacts on the West Coast sound. We weren't thinking that. We, was, we were music. All we was doing was thinking about music, putting it together, selling some records and getting it to the world. Because me and Hutch, that's my cousin, Cole 187, we come from a musical background. Right. My dad was a writer, arranger, and composer at Motown, where his works include so many slew of hits from Motown. Um, our, our uncle was Willie Hutch, who did the soundtrack for Macworld. I'll be, I'll be there for the Jacksons. Boom, boom, boom. So we already had music in us embedded in our DNA. And it's just like, you know, that's how music is supposed to be. It's sweet poetry to the suppression that you go through. And we just, everything we went through, we just used to put our pain on paper. And people were really feeling that. Like Concrete Jungle, Black Superman, No Pain, No Gain. Because it was something 
that we didn't just write on purpose and be living in big mansions and hills. You got to remember, you know what I'm saying? There was a lot going on. The music that we put out there and the G-Funk and soul we put out there was really a reflection of what we went through, and that's the truth. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, with with having, like, family members like Jerry Long and Willie Hutch, you know, being a part of your family, you know, how was it growing up with having such a rich musical, you know, influence in your family? Man, you always expected to to um, go have a high standard. And, um, you know, sometimes it can get on your nerves, <laughs> you know, in a, in a weird way because people expect, I mean, that's our uncle and that's my dad who did what they did. And I just, you know, I thank God that I come from, I thank God that me and I come from such rich history, but we never did live in our people's shadow. God allowed us to do it on our own and set our own records and do our own music. And we didn't never want to. We we, we were students of, of the crowd first and music theory. I mean, I used to play in a jazz band at 13, brother. Oh, nice. So I knew tonations and different other things and just music theory. We wanted to take all that we heard from our our peers and and stuff that affected us, George Clinton, Ohio players, the soulful sound. And we didn't really want it to do the P-Funk thing, but we wanted to call it G-Funk. And years later, the real identity, real identity of the West Coast sound, majority rules, basically is that G-Funk sound. You look at what Hutch did, you look at what Dre did, you look at what Yella did, you look at what Battlecat did. All these producers... And that is our identity, you know. So according to that identity, the most featured recording artist in the history of the business out of any genres of music kept doing that particular style for the last 26 years. So that's why it's the embodiment of that that, that sound to say King of T-Funk. Other than that, I really don't care about entitlement because I'm a king of my own castle. I got eight kids by one woman. <laughs> but all due respect to my own boy, rest in peace, KMG, who was a contributing part of the uh, uh, above the law, of course. You know, he, he made a joke. He said, you own so much stuff, man. You really is the king of T-Funk. He said, man, you should put on a shirt and wear that, man. He said, I ain't playing. <laughs> so in all respect to my homeboy, Kevin Gully, that's why I faithfully put out the King of G-Funk, which this album is dedicated to him. And that's why I am the King King of G-Funk, Alpha Pound. Right, and getting into that, you got this uh, King of G-Funk album coming out on March 18th. Kind of uh, mm-hmm. talk about what you're going, um, talk about the new album, you know, who you, you know, worked with or whatnot on it. This album is crazy. It's going back to the roots because, you know, you can't invent the wheel. And like the universe, things run around. What goes around, it comes back around again. So now it's the return to the 90s. You see your YG's gravitating to it, going back to his G-Funk roots. Right. You see your Kendricks. You see a lot of the youngsters really starting to gravitate back to the 1990s. You know, so with this particular album, 
I wanted something to identify the body of work, but to put it not so much that I got features on my stuff because music had became featured out the game instead of going back to just good music. So being that I still put some features on this project, of course, I wanted to go back into live instrumentation. Right. The part where soul music was about. Was nice. really happening and, and stuff that influenced me. So I reached out. It took me like a year to get this project together, a little bit over a year to get this project. And I felt that I wanted to reach out to to my cousin Hutch. I got Battle Cat, Meech Wells, who's by the way, is Mary Wells' son, who's who did a lot of good stuff in the game for Snoop as well. And I wanted to reach out some upcoming acts and youngsters that really respect the origins of soul music and funk. Okay. And I did that. So as far as the features is concerned, I just reached out to my comrades, and it was a blessing to see the love and energy reciprocated back. So on this project, I got Uncle George Clinton, um, who's the king of P-Funk, getting down with the king of G-Funk. <laughs> I got Exhibit. I got Trady. I got Corrupt. I got Big Gip. Big up to my A, folks, because even though this is a West Coast album, I felt I had to get somebody from the South that really represented how it all started. And South is no different than how we were doing it back in the days with the soul music. So I got Gip on there. I got my daughter. She's the apple that falls from the tree. She's 20 years old. Her name is Anissa. I got Snoop on there. I had to get my loke on there because we already had the chemistry. We we proved that. Right. And I don't but say say... I don't want to let too much cat out the bag, but when you hear this King of G-Funk album, we've been campaigning for the last four months, and really, people are really gravitating back to that soul music, hardcore West Coast with substance G-Funk sound. And it's crazy, the visuals we've been putting out there, like I have this cat named Short Choppers on there. He used to be writing a lot of stuff for Q. We'd be clubbing and different things. And they're playing that on the radio right now, and it's it's really starting to get out there because I understood that in order to really come out right, you got to take your time, and you can't be rushing nothing when you're American. You can't rushing nothing. So I wanted to take my time with this project, and a year or something later, we came up with the King of G-Funk, and... Right now, the campaign has got over a million, you know, with people just really gravitating to it. So, you know, it's the right time right now for that type of music to be heard and go to the popular forefront. And when you hear this King of G-Funk album, it's going to touch your soul because we're not only just talking about where we're from, we're talking about social messages, conscious, things that are going on that are pertaining to life. And getting back, that's what, when you get out of this King of G-Funk album, it's, gonna, it's a little something for everybody. Because that's what music is about. Music is supposed to help you when you're going through your most roughest times. And I guarantee you, for all music people out there, when y'all hear this new King of G-Funk, as deadly as the name cocaine is, 
as deadly as the message going to be. And you're going to feel it. It's going to inspire you. And it's going to help you through these times in 2016. And definitely. And with all the people that you've worked with over the years, um, you know, whether just, you know, guest appearing on their uh, records or them being guests on your records, you know, how were you able to maintain all these relationships, you know, given that, you know, you've worked with the best of the best in hip hop? Well, you know, I, I don't never step on nobody's welcome mat because at least you, you, you're aware of your welcome. You understand? Definitely. So every time, you know, I always just kept it cool, like, you know, outside of certain indifferences that we had. But I'll go back to 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 just when I was raised, man. I've always been a people person. You know, I've always been a team player. I always believed that a quarterback can't throw a Hail Mary to himself and go down the field and catch it. You know, so that type of mentality just stuck with me, man. You know, and um, sometimes when you're out there and, you know, people take your kindness for cheap, but then that's all part of the process that you go through. You know what I'm saying? People are in your life for a season, and sometimes people are in your life for a season for the wrong reasons. So, but I've always just kept ten toes down, humbled myself, and uh, I think you know that really helped me survive all these years and stay relevant in the game, even as an independent. Right now, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, we're still putting out music to this day. You know, you definitely have to love it. You know, how do you continue to still have fun with it all? I mean, first of all, you got to love what you're doing. If you don't, don't give up your day job, <laughs> you know. I love music, man. You know, back when I used to try to emulate George Clinton, here's my chance to make yeah. I do a Rick James. I was born coming up from ghetto. <laughs> man, I love music, man. <laughs> you know. And that's, that's the, I mean, that's what life is about, man. It's in some type of way, music is in everything, man. You go outside and hear the birds chirp. Music is powerful. Universe, which I would say, God made this, and uh, he put it inside me, and I can't help it if I wanted to. Not to do music, I love music. And first you got to have a love for anything you do if you, if you're flipping burgers, love what you do. If you're drawing art, love what you do. People people set themselves up for failure because, the, first of all, they don't know how to love what they do while they're going through the process of struggle. Yeah, definitely. That, over this, you know, past year, you know, with the, definitely with the Straight Outta Compton movie, the whole legacy of West Coast rap has just been heavily looked back upon uh, through everybody. What do you think is the stamp that kind of like the West Coast gangster rap, West Coast hip-hop from the 80s and 90s put onto the music industry that makes it so viable even today? Like Trey said, witness the street knowledge. End quote. 
knowledge. Knowledge is what? Power. Wouldn't you agree? Definitely. So, you know, the stamp that it has on it is that, you know, through this music where it was on the East Coast, West Coast, wherever coast you're from, Rakim said it best. It ain't where you're from, it's where you're at. Do you understand? And I don't know no other music form outside of between, you know, the jazz, so much the jazz and rock and roll and different things. You got to look on a big, massive scale, especially financially. Man, hip-hop surpassed everything, brother. They said hip-hop was going to die 20-something years ago. Where's hip-hop today? Globally. So, I would say hip-hop is, is hip-hop, let me see. Hip-hop is an old statue. It's like a Lincoln statue. No matter how much it gets chipped up, it's still standing. It definitely, like, what do you think at this point hip-hop needs to do to kind of continue its, you know, place in the universe, continue this sort of maturation period that it's in where it's not just a young person's game anymore. It's it's definitely involved into things of different generations now where there is a mature audience, a mature part of it. What do you think hip-hop needs to do to still be connected with the community? Well, the good thing about even what Steve Jobs did and how other other companies had to reduce their shelf space, technology is good and bad. But the good thing that you can use from technology is that you have your independence. Whenever you take something from the people, this game became about just so much of a corporate structure that uh, it became capitalist and greedy. And there was no love. They took it. Whenever you take something from the people, it becomes an illusion. Now I see where hip-hop is. It's going back to the people. It's going back to where companies, independent companies, can have their own autonomy and not worry about a 360 deal and get their stuff to the whole world. So really, hip-hop you, is, 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 I would love it to continue to see it go back into the hands from which it was created, bottom line. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's been uh, definitely great with talking with you. Uh, yeah, I definitely love this interview, man, talking with you about the old uh, West Coast days and whatnot. Um, yeah, thanks for, uh, you know, talking with me for, for my podcast. Man, God bless you, man. I hope it came off straight. And uh, make sure you send me a copy when you finish. And uh, this ain't the first time we're going to talk. It's many more. Definitely, man. Definitely, man. Thanks for taking the time out to uh, chat with me. You got it. God bless you, soldier. soldier and happy 2016, you and your family. All right, man. Have a good day. All right. You too. Later. So that was my interview with Cocaine. Go pick up that uh, new album of his, King of G-Funk, March 18th, 2016. Should be good. If you'd like to uh, support the Fresh is the Word podcast, you can go to our website, which is freshisthepodcast.com, and there's a link at the top that says support the podcast. 
And on that page, there is a PayPal link that you can donate to, or there is a Amazon link on there that you can use anytime that you want to purchase anything on Amazon. Use that link, and after you make your purchases, Amazon will shoot some commission back to me. I'll just go to help the show. Also, I definitely appreciate all the listens, and if you definitely want to share the links to the website, preciousthepodcast.com, or any of the links on SoundCloud, that's definitely appreciated and will definitely help support the podcast. You can also reach Fresh is the Word on the social medias at Instagram and Twitter at Fresh is the Word 1. That's Fresh is the Word number 1. And on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash Fresh is the Podcast and give us a like on that page. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, so go ahead and search Fresh is the Word on there and go ahead and subscribe to us. And it also would be very helpful if you go onto iTunes and give us a five-star rating and throw some comments on there. Thanks for listening and see you soon. Fresh, 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 fresh is the word.